Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. Ileana Schinder, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Happy to be here, Mark. Ileana is an architect based in Washington, D.C., and since opening her architecture studio in 2014, Ileana has designed additional dwelling units that create new spaces for clients and their families to thrive. The affordable housing crisis today can be solved through innovative residential and urban design. Family models have evolved, society has reframed the role of cities, and ongoing urban realities demand opportunities to create housing for all from first-time homeowners to retirees. Ileana's new book, Housing for Humans, navigates the design process of new housing and explores ideas that can be implemented from the suburbs to cities through history of urban design, zoning regulation, and with emphasis on the human side of housing. Ileana highlights the role that home plays in society today. I'm really looking forward to this book. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it. And I'm really looking forward to diving into it here on the podcast. Uh, Ileana, it's great to have you here at Entree Architect Podcast. I'm happy to be here. I'm a longtime reader of your um, of your group, and I'm, I'm very thankful of the group of architects that you've brought together. Thank you. I appreciate you. I, I you've uh, you've been in the community for a long time. Uh, if if anybody who is listening doesn't know the Entree Architect community, we have a Facebook group 
of over 7,400 architects, all architects. It is private. Uh, if you want to join us, you can request membership at entrearchitect.com slash group. Ileana has been a member of that community for a long time, probably actually part of the community, the Entree Architect community at large, probably before uh, the Facebook group. I, I recognized your name from a long time ago, and so you've been part of our community for a long time. Um, before we jump into talking about you and the book and the things that you're doing, um, I'd love to learn more about you as an architect. What inspired you to become an architect? Maybe even who uh, influenced getting you to where you are today? What's your origin story? So I've had a lot of very, very positive influences that shape me as the architect I am today. I wish I had a story like most people that can pinpoint it to one event, but I think that the the person and the architect I am today has been shaped by my history. I'm from Argentina. I went to school there, but I there wasn't one thing. I had different people um, that inspire me to be an architect. Again, Argentina is a culture where being an architect is not rare. It's just as common as being an accountant or a lawyer or a dentist going into architecture. It's a very common service to hire. And it's very common to have a family member, <clears throat> sorry, a friend, a neighbor that is an architect. So it doesn't have that variety that I discovered that in the US, like in, in America, architects are more like mythological creatures that people <laughs> don't interact as much. So that's a little bit, it's almost been like the normality of it. Also, my dad's a structural engineer, my uncle was an architect, but that wasn't what made it special because again, it was very common. It's like, hey, my dad could be anything else. And it was like it was a it's a normal career it doesn't have the um how can i say the cachet or it's like look right. at a, a yeah. musician or an artist it's like i'm just an architect which is like extremely normal um and then like everyone else i like to play with legos i had some professors i had one professor in high school that we had a workshop that was very interesting but um again it's kind of um people are like, it's kind of a turn of idea to say like, I, I've always liked it. I think I was good at it. And also as, as you know, in school, I had excellent professors that kept me inspired as I worked in my career, every boss I've had, like helped me become more engaged about learning and sharing. And I've worked with different firms that they did from residential to urban design, science and tech, um, higher ed, and every one of them sort of shaped the person I'm today and how I run my own business. I opened my firm in 2014 doing just kitchens and doing anything I could get my hands on. And the shape and the type of clients changed. And I started being demanded by what is my, the, my, my typical client now, which is not typical in the sense of, you know, mom, dad, two kids and a dog. Right. Um, and I think that that sort of open-minded helps me run my business and help me design projects. So, you know, I'm sorry, I don't have like the perfect story. You could put a picture frame on, but there's a wealth of people around it that, you know, if I were to, I mean, I could write a book just about them because there's so many and the anecdotes are so great, you know, from the guy in the, 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 city of Washington helping you understand a permit process to, you know, a principal in a firm I worked 10 years ago that taught you the relevance about like having an organized project folder. Um, I, I 
I don't, I, I couldn't exclude anyone and, you know, dealing with contractors every day, the relevance about like, you know, not having specs separate from drawings, which is a different way to draw, you know, they all help me understand the work I do better. So you today, today, do you primarily focus on residential architecture? Yes, yes, I do mostly residential. And I work with uh, mostly renovations and again, additional dwelling units, part of those renovations, some of them convert into housing. Washington, D.C., I'm not sure how, um, where are you, Mark, at? Where's I'm, city? I'm currently based in Charlotte, North Carolina, but I but I grew up and was raised in most of my adult life in the New York metropolitan area. Right. I mean, very similar to the New York area. Washington, yeah. D.C. is um, extremely built out. Um, yeah. So there are very, very few empty lots. I don't think I've ever seen any. The most you can get close to new construction is a developer goes and knock, knocks it down and then put a spec house on that's the end of it. All my clients, I mean, we do some like extremely good renovations, but the, the main challenge of my job, which I love, is people that don't have time, don't have money, or don't have space, or they don't have any of those, and they call me to see how to, what to do. Um, so that is what I, I, I love the dynamic of the type of job. I love the um, sometimes like, you know, trying to help people with design ideas without actually expecting them to solve it through me, through a building. Many times like, hey, you know, I'm going to have another baby and I need to figure out another bedroom. It's like, well, we're going to try to squeeze out here and with just drywall, you can do it and this will improve your quality of life. Or we need more storage or, you know, do this and it'll be good for like a few years and then you'll change it again and you don't go bankrupt. I love to bring design to whatever people need it and not just to think, oh, you need the A, capital A architect to solve a capital C, you know, a capital H house that we can't afford because we don't have the capital M money. So it's like when you take all that out, it's like, well, can we as architects get to solve housing problems with what we have and not what we wish we had. Um, I mean, luxury housing is awesome. Like, I wish I had a lot of more of those clients. I have a few um, because like the design skill, I, I think it's there. It's just like somehow, you know, one person invites a bunch of friends for dinner and you design their kitchen and then, you know, they all call you and then, you know, the guys from daycare and it's just like now it has become like complete craziness with the referral machine. Yeah, yeah, that's a very important market. That that um, we call them because that, that was the same market we did in in New York. My wife and I are both mm-hmm. architects. Um, oh. It is very You're similar. Like me. My husband's also an architect, so we could commiserate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and the markets are very similar between Washington D.C. and New York um, and the metropolitan area around New York. We were in Westchester County, north of New York City. And it's all built out, you know. It was all built out in the in the 30s and 40s. It's it's mm-hmm. you know pretty old stock. Um, no room for new development. And so our market was we called them high end small projects, and they were what, exactly. exactly what you talked about. They were solving problems for families that were moving from the city out into the suburbs. And, right, and and also one thing that I had to rethink is how I, as an architect have to rethink my design process, my marketing process, my sales process, because I can't burden somebody who doesn't have the funds to build with failed marketing practices from the past. So I started breaking down my services and charging very, very small amount of money that I don't end up burning for all the rejected proposals that 10 people didn't want to hire me. I shouldn't shouldn't make the guy who hires me pay for all those. And also, I don't want to go 
bankrupt while right. doing my job. So I started breaking down and offering services that are verbal consultations where I can actually almost draw in chalk what we're talking about. I always broke down the design process where people can um, think about the phasing of their project, but also the phasing of the fees that unburdens them in case they can't build everything they need at once. So we break down the timeline of the project and the scope and the fees that makes everything affordable for them, right? So, you know, if they need a car, you know, it's not that we're going for the luxury Mercedes, like, you know, yeah. there are a lot of things you can do between, you know, a pair of shoes and a luxury Bentley, we can do as architects to satisfy that like vehicle need. But, you know, if we apply it to a house, we can do the same thing. Yeah, it's a great idea to to break down the the scope and the services and the fees into smaller increments so people can solve some of the problems they need without having to go all in on a, you know, full architectural services contract and and Yeah, and, and also not... when I I also one thing I had to do is I noticed that the AIA contract was very expensive to me as a small firm, so I hired a um, lawyer who's actually yep. my first client. He specializes in working with architects and he's he's adorable. He's amazing because he knows how architects tend to do things for free and tends to do things to help clients that it's like becomes a huge liability and it becomes a huge cost. So he actually designed the um, the contract that I share with clients that has the same strength than an AIA contract, but it's much easier to understand. It's like normal language. And also I took his that it was all like very wordy. And I was like, I love the contract, um, but I like redesign it with a layout that's very, very easy to understand what we're talking about, who the client is, what's the scope, what's the fee, what are the dates. So, so the client understands what they're getting, but also what they're not getting and what's optional and what it's like, you know, they won't be charged until we move to certain phases because, you know, it's a residential client. You know, I had a client once whose lip furnace like exploded or something happened and he couldn't do the project and he was all concerned. I said, well, I signed this contract. Like, well, if you're not going to do the project, just, you know, you pay me for the work that was done and the rest just call me later. And I think the guy ended up selling the house and called me for his new house. I don't remember what the story was behind it, but my clients have the comfort that there are limits on, it's like it's a flat fee also. I, I never charge based on the percentage. Like people don't like that. Imagine yeah. you go to a restaurant that's like, well, I'm going to charge you for how much you like the cake. Like, no, I, <laughs> I want to know how much, you know, and I like cake. I just, I just want to know how much I'm going to pay for this cake. And I think architects, we need to get down to that kind of stuff. We need to see how other businesses are very successful at doing what they do and pick on that. Um, you know, we don't need to reinvent the wheel of everything. And I'm not sure we as architects are trained to do everything right. I mean, we're not very good at business practice, I don't think. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, we're not trained in that in architecture school. Very few of us are, are trained beyond architecture school, uh, which is exactly why Entree Architect exists to sort of help architects learn those business practices, the fundamentals, so we can mm -hmm. thrive as a profession. Um, so yeah, it's very important, and you have some great ideas. And and um, I I think if anybody wanted to reach out to you to talk to you more about those, I'm sure you'd be available to. Uh, yeah, to I always to love to share things yeah. like that, and I always go down to the basics. It's when I was telling you that certain architects were very inspiring. My first question is, what do the drawings say? What does the contract say? 
If you don't put it in the contract, the other guy is right. If you don't put it in the drawings, the contractor is right. Period. Yeah, that's very good. That's a very and good way to look at it's it. It's sad because like when I was a was a as a junior person in Iraq, the, the first thing that the manager, the project manager says, what does the drawing say? It doesn't say anything. Then you issue a bulletin. And you issue a bulletin knowing that you were in the wrong. Um so and though so you learn not to leave anything unknown, like particularly anything that has to do with money. Well, everything has to do with money because it has to do with time. So if you didn't tell a client you were not going to be available for construction administration, um, where does it say you're not available? Where does it say how much you're gonna, it's going to cost them? So a lot of my clients, the way that I can deliver these small projects is to break down the, is to draw them in a way that they can manage the construction administration without me. And everything is off the shelf. So they can go to my design, they can go to Ikea and tell the Ikea guy, sell me this kitchen and I know the cabinets work um you know and we have to come down from saying oh no I, this Ikea this idea but it's like my house is all Ikea there's a reason I have small children you know things break furniture changes a lot so we just start seeing our clients as we see our own life like not everyone can buy like modern leather furniture um I don't have it um, but you know and we start getting like start working with normal products you know yeah. i always yeah. come down to i'll never forget the day that michael graves launched his product line in target i was the first one i bought everything I, I mean i didn't have a lot of money then so i ended up buying like the toaster and utensils and and it was a spoon i still have it i love it i have two spoons and i take care of that one and it's beautiful and the handle is beautiful and it was five dollars can we provide how can we as architects give ideas like Michael Graves gave to a ton of buyers, including myself, um, but depending on the house. Like when I go, I charge for consultations, which is a lot of people are like, I don't do that. Well, I charge for consultations because I know when I walk out, people can do a lot with the ideas I give them. Right. Right. And that's that's part of the philosophy of breaking down your services to exactly. these smaller increments. And so even that that initial consultation is going to be of value and there's, there's a cost to that value. Let's take a quick break to say thank you to our sponsors for their support of this episode. This episode is brought to you by FreshBooks. There's a lot to love about being an entrepreneur architect, right? But trying to figure out your financials on your own is not one of those things. Luckily, there's FreshBooks the all-in-one accounting solution that's built for business owners like us. FreshBooks takes all the not-so-fun parts of running a business from building and tracking invoices to managing online payments to organizing expenses and automates them with features like the new digital bills and receipt scanner saving you up to 11 hours per week in the process. 11 hours. FreshBooks has your back at tax time too. It's almost tax time. With a ton of reports to choose from, you'll know exactly where your business stands and you can easily hand the keys over to your accountant so they can take over when it's time to reconcile everything for the year. F try FreshBooks. Try FreshBooks for free for 30 days. No credit card required. It's free. Go to freshbooks.com architect. freshbooks.com architect to get started today. That's freshbooks.com architect. So what will you do 
your 11 more hours each week. This episode is brought to you by RCAT.com. If you haven't used RCAT's Spec Wizard before, now is the time. Spec Wizard is a patented tool that allows you to specify a product in just three simple steps, all for free, without even registering. Completely accessible, completely free. Step one, research and find the right products for your project at RCAT.com. That's A-R-C-A-T dot com. Step two, use the Spec Wizard tool to select products and options, right? Simple. Step three, generate a complete three-part CSI or CSC specification based on your selections. That's it. A complete three-part specification in an instant with SpecWizard. Again, SpecWizard is free to use and requires no registration, no payment, no email, none of it. It's free. Just head over to rcat.com and try SpecWizard today. SpecWizard at rcat.com. That's rcat.com. A-R-C-A-T dot com. Please visit our sponsors today and thank them. Thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. It's the cost of two hours because yeah. I, I tell one hour consultation and then they're driving back and forth. But I also credit, so if it's it's an immediate credit of, of, the, of the proposal. But a lot of people, particularly realtors, hire me because of technical issues they don't know. It's like, hey, what's this basement missing to be an apartment? You know, how much is going to cost? So we do a walkthrough. We look at all the technical things. And... For them, it's it's another expert they bring in, right? right. And now the inspector, right? It's like, hey, the windows are missing, the electrical, the infrastructure, and it's all information the client needs to know before putting a bid on a house, how much money they need to invest to do the work they want to do. Um, so to them, it's extremely valuable. And I think that as architects, we need to know that we are valuable, not just for you know the luxury home that you know it's gonna cost you know four hundred thousand, you know. Where are all the architects that will do designs for people that don't have 300000 for construction? I yeah. don't think we're too many of those. And it's a big market. And you can we made a lot of money doing, doing the work we did. And so uh, there's, there is, if you build the business that way and you build the systems that you need to run the, a business like that, it's a market that, and there's lots and lots, there's a lot of work. Uh, there is a lot of work. Uh, since I opened my business in 2014, my business has been growing between 20 and 30% every year. Yeah, it's, yeah, fantastic. It's a lot. And yep. to the point where now I need to make a big decision to see if I hire more people, if I stay where I am, because of personal reasons, I have small children, the pandemic and everything. I just, I don't have the capacity to work more. Yeah. And more staff means more work, more clients means more work. And I, I'm at a point where I need to rethink. And also writing this book made me realize that I'm also interested at sharing what I know instead of doing more than what I do now is to do it differently. Um, so I'm always excited to explore new things. You know, this book has a lot about policy. So how can I make people that don't do architecture, that don't need architecture, directly? how can I share what I know, you know? giving talks, talking to realtors, talking to policymakers, writing. Um, so the, the working more or less hours does shape how I do the work I do. The book is called Housing for Humans. What what inspired the book? What, why did you write it? Well, it, it was inspired by the trend that I started seeing. It was, it was a client-inspired book. 
is Washington DC, like we mentioned before, is all built out in, um, it's not all, there's still a few lots left out, extremely expensive, but anyways, so there's a big high demand for housing. Um, there's very, very little affordable housing. So in 2016, the city of Washington changed what is the zoning law and made um, additional dwelling units available by right. So, you know, we had all these basement apartments, we had all these sort of semi-abandoned retail spaces. Washington DC has a huge housing stock of um, townhouses from that were built between the 1880 and 1920, but lots, neighborhoods and neighbors no end. For the longest time, because the population of Washington was declining, there was no demand to even capture that space for even your own use. Like, why would you go there? I mean, you, you don't need it. But now with a higher demand, people started occupying the basements as livable space. And people was like, hey, let's make an apartment. Um, so they started, they were like ghost apartments. They started being created, but without all the technical infrastructure, things that mean safety, like egress and smoke detectors. And right. So they were like, the apartments were there, but not legal, but the demand was there. So the city just said, oh, you know what? If you have a house in Washington, DC, you have the right to create one more dwelling under some conditions. One more dwelling, no questions asked. I mean, yes, you know, respecting zoning, all that kind of stuff, but it's like, you don't need to ask for permission. And that was huge change because people started slowly saying, okay, but then the city started demanding, you need proper drawings. You can't just throw a wall, throw a stove and say, that's a house. Because when we go inspect it, we're going to make you fail because of it's not. So I saw one, like one of my first client was a, basement conversion that somebody had been living there illegally they bought the house and it's like we don't need this space we're going to make it so we did that um then another one that was like an old retail they have a certificate of occupancy in a neighborhood that's beautiful and then um, there's kind of a ground floor basement in the corner so we turned that and then one after another and then it was like a flood it was like oh you did that basement for that guy now i want it now i want it um so it was also working with the city to say, okay, what does it mean a set of drawings? And then the next person, so more corrections. So we started building up on the feedback we would get from the city. And in about, I would say 2018, 2019, the idea of an additional dwelling became like a normal thing, had to stop explaining what it was. People knew what they wanted, um, how they wanted it done. I knew all the technical background, you know, the electrical plumbing, all the boring stuff, you know, the construction drawings, the permit stuff, code. Um, but people really want to know the details of what needs to be done for these to be legal. Um, you know, housing costs in DC skyrocketed and now it's, just, it's nonstop after the pandemic and also became a normal thing. Also, I noticed that my clients are not are not like your typical family. I don't have... You know, yes, the, the, I don't have a majority type of client that I would say, oh, I'm going to cater for like married couples with two children. My clients are the guy who just bought the house and wants to bring in his relative to live in the house or, and they're all pitching in for the money or have the retired family who has the kid that's coming back from college and they, or they plan for some, have other clients that they plan to they're building a backyard house and they plan to retire there because they're European, they plan to move back and forth. So the idea of housing being a particular need, it's not like have this house, you know, I'm gonna live here from when I retire to like, I go to a retirement home. So we start looking at residential space as like more flexible, like what, what can it do for you? 
um, in what stage you're in life. So that the book was inspired by that because it was like, okay, a lot of people are curious about space, curious about their house. Like, how do I explain to them in normal terms? And a lot of what I say in the book is like same tense sentences I keep repeating with my clients. Like when you have to explain a client prefab versus traditional construction, um, it just, in a few pages, I explain to them why when you see these videos online, oh, so cute. Well, that costs you double per square foot and you end up with the same house. And this is why it's so expensive. Um, this is why certain things are gimmicks that you shouldn't fall for. Um, I'm not saying that everyone should have an additional dwelling in their house, but I'm just telling them, look at your house with a more open mind. You know, the house you have, you know, like, I want this to be my forever home. Well, nothing is forever. Our own lifestyle is not forever. Our own tastes, our jobs, ourselves, we're not forever. So how do we make sure that we're designing a home that works for today and for our anticipated needs, but we don't think about, you know, the market. What does the market says about how many bedrooms I should have? I should have walk-in closets. Well, no, you don't need, like nobody needs what the market says people need. So the, the book was inspired by that, but it's like, how do we make a house that works for you? Yeah, what a great, what a great concept and a great idea to um, write a book that, that obviously reflects our current society, the, the current zoning changes, all these things that are happening, uh, the demand for housing and, and the flexibility and the new uses for, for housing. Certainly the pandemic has influenced much of the way we're changing the way we're living today. Um, and so it's a great opportunity to write a book for our potential clients and people who are curious about how they can maximize the use of their homes. Uh, it also sounds like it would be a great book for architects, for our community to also have and read and, and um, uh, have that information available for their clients. That's right. I mean, I, one thing I, I, I'm interested about is like, who do we work for? Who is our client? Do we know who are, who's our potential client? Are we still expecting the guy who comes with big checkbook ready for us to do whatever we fantasize in school about? But that client doesn't exist. And if it exists, there are like 50 other architects fighting for that and taking down the fee and like, you know, and staying till three in the morning. And so it was like, who are the clients that need our services and how can we serve them? One thing I noticed is I always love it when like people talk about the census. It's like, you know, the like social data. Like who we are as a country. Now, I know I'm an immigrant. I'm from Argentina. English is my second language. It's like very basic data. But every time the census come up, it's like we are a more culturally diverse country than ever. Um, I notice in my with my client, I mean, Washington this is particularly diverse when it comes to uh, immigrant and people from other cultures. But I notice that my clients from like Indian origins and Asian origins, they always consider the larger family as part of people that will occupy the house. So you need to, as an architect, you need to consider how we're going to distribute bedrooms. Do they all to be clustered together or how about we distribute them in the house to reflect the closeness of their family without losing privacy? Because, hey, if people from three generations are going to live together and those people keep aging and changing and you know, they'll move in and out of the house as they need. Well, 
am I designing the right house for the next 10 years? Or in five years, they'll be like, I don't, you know, the one who was a little kid, now it's a teenager, and now there's nowhere for him to go because like the aunt lives next door. And then that that is what we need to rethink as an architect, how time and culture plays in our with our client. How is the book structured? The book is structured. Um, I have it right here. Uh, I know it's a podcast, so you can see the cover. Uh, the book is structured. Um, um, so there's a lot of background information. Um, I notice it's inspired how questions come up when I talk to a client. Of course, it's 130, 160 pages versus, you know, a phone call that I would have with a potential client. But it it explains a lot of background. It explains a chapters based on how families have evolved, how zoning shapes housing, how affordability shapes housing. So it doesn't attack the idea of additional dwelling units as a topic, but it gives a social, financial, and urban context to explain why additional dwelling units are so popular and so needed. So I'm not gonna tell, I don't like, you know, you know, raise my hand and say everyone should have this, but it explains why it's it's they're necessary. Why I know that in some um, in some cities and some neighborhoods, particularly like near where I am, uh, it, they're very controversial because people have an idea of what density is. But the book explains what those things mean when it comes to people and not just when it comes to like an abstract concept. If you talk about affordable housing, people still have the idea of this giant building isolated on the side of the highway, when actually you could distribute the same amount of units in about, you know, 10 blocks in backyards. So, and the buildings are already there. The buildings are abandoned garages are so small that you can't fit a car or nobody uses covered garages because our cars are not leather top. They're normal cars and they sleep in the front like against the curb. Um, so the idea is that is demystifying what we hear and what we see every day and start paying attention when we talk about that there's no places for the early to live in the urban context. Why do they have to live like outside of the beltway? Here in DC, it's like outside of the beltway. It's like, you know, where you get like retirement communities, stuff like that. Well, because there's no affordable housing within our current context. So I talk, I give a lot of context and say, well, this is why housing needs to change. I do focus a little bit as well as like how retail has changed. I mean, of course, I talk about the pandemic because that's when I was writing it. Um, so the data on that, I always say, you know, at the moment I wrote this, but I, I also put a lot of emphasis on what it means for people when they live in homogeneous, isolated communities. You know, what happens with your neighborhood's dormitory when everyone just sprints at nine in the morning and you come back at five o'clock. So why is the park empty? Because nobody's home. And so an experience I share with that, that counters that during the pandemic, everyone was home 24 seven and all the retail, the local neighborhood retail boomed in our neighborhood. It was great. Like a donut shop opened, fortunately 10 blocks from my house, not that close. My first thought was like, these people are suicidal. It's like, they have the worst timing to open a shop. What do you know? It's like blocks, like, you know, the, the line goes out the block because it shows that when you create housing, I mean, the pandemic was a push, but when you have housing conditions that promote 
uses of time throughout the day, you support local businesses. So for example, there could be a yoga gym behind someone's backyard and I would walk to it. Instead, if you want to go to yoga, you need to drive somewhere, do yoga and drive back. Even if they're all coming from the same neighborhood. So I think that the work from home 2020 and 2021 have been a show that's saying the neighborhood, the houses that we have are okay, but they can be better. Yeah. yeah there, there's a new way of thinking for everything that we're doing because of the pandemic. And and housing is certainly one of those things. I'm looking forward to, to reading the book. Uh, I hope others pick it up and read it as well. I think there's lots uh, to learn. Um, may inspire others to share their ideas and concepts as well. Um, and so uh, I appreciate you for, for writing that book. Uh, and, Thanks, uh, Mark. It's been a pleasure. It's challenging. Um, a lot of your group also, every time they've had questions or ideas, I was like, why do architects think this way and made me rethink uh, and question that? I think that we as architects, our goal is to constantly say, why is it like this? Can it be better from the way a pencil is designed to the way we layer a contract or the way we think about a house? We cannot just sit back and say, I'm done. Um, this is the way it's been. That's like my worst answer. It's like when I ask, why is this this way? Because the way it's always been, that's like, no, that we shouldn't, we shouldn't fall for that. And it yeah. goes for everything. Yeah, that doesn't work anymore. Um, you're you're talking to the community right now, so I'd love to ask you the one question that I ask everybody here on the podcast. What's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? To question if we are serving the right people the way they need to be served. And when I need serve, it's not just cater to them, but to inspire them to think about their own life, the way they want to live it differently. Um, not every client needs to, uh, not every client needs an architect, but every client needs a better life. And if that life can be built through architecture, that's wonderful. But it also needs the strength and the open-mindedness to say, we need to look at this problem differently. In a, we need to design the solution that they need through architecture, through interior designs, through business. And we must be able to show that we are designers at heart. And sometimes the design problem is just a table that you know you need to remove or rotate. And sometimes the problem is you need a whole new addition. Um, the most challenging and inspired clients are the ones that are missing the part that we wish they had, the budget, the timeline, the space. Um, we can't just expect to solve the easy problems only. That I think that the, the most successful architects are the ones that uh, I, I call them the the, um, the the ones that are in the mud, the ones that, hey, you show up on site and you didn't expect things to be the way you wanted, the way that somebody assembled things a little bit differently, how you solve that. That is why clients love us or hate us, how much we care to solve problems. Ileana Schinder is her name. Uh, you can check out her website at ilianaschinder.com. We'll have a link to that on the show notes. You can just go to the show notes for this episode uh, and click the link, and you'll be taken to a beautiful website, beautifully redesigned recently. Uh, you can learn more about the book there as well. It's called Housing for Humans. You can buy the book at Amazon. It's available right now. We'll have a link to that as well on the show notes. So you can go to the show notes and click the link and buy the book, Housing for Humans. 
Ileana, thank you not only for joining us here today on the podcast, but thank you for uh, openly and transparently sharing your knowledge with the community of architects that we have uh, and for spending the time and effort uh, and money on developing and writing this book to share your knowledge with the world. I appreciate you for taking the lead on our issues with housing uh, and looking at the way housing can be done in a different way today. Uh, so thanks for writing the book and thanks for joining me here at Entree Architect Podcast. If you liked this episode of Entree Architect Podcast, please share a rating, write a review. Yep, if you liked this episode, go write about it. Wherever you're listening to this episode, they all have access to a, a rating or a review. I ask you to do that because that's how other architects will find it and share this link, the link to this episode if you liked it share it with a friend who maybe not may not know what we're doing here at Entree Architect. That's how we've grown over the last 10 years. Yes, 2022 is our 10th year here at Entree Architect Podcast, and that is how we've grown because you share this link with a friend. That's how we've grown, to serve thousands more architects just like you. And thank you to our sponsors because we could not do it without them. To sponsors for this episode, FreshBooks and ArtCat, Thank you for their support. Links to our sponsors and all the resources we discussed today on this episode are available at the show notes for this episode found at entrearchitect.com slash podcast. Entree Architect is a member of Gable Media Podcast Network. Gable Media is curated thought leadership for an audience dedicated to building a better world. Listen and subscribe to all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. Go check out gablemedia.com. We, right now we have 10 podcasts on gablemedia.com, all architecture, engineering, construction. You will love it. It's built for you, for you. Go check it out at gablemedia.com. And coming to Austin this fall, Austin, Texas, this fall of 2022, the Entree Architect Community Annual Meeting. Yes, the first ever live and in-person conference for you, small firm architects. Come hang out with us in Austin this autumn. Visit entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting right now to learn more and subscribe for updates. That's entrearchitect.com slash annual meeting, our conference for small firms. I hope to see you in Austin. Thank you for listening today. Love, learn, and share what you know. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. 
in drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively that <laughs> then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i, I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us can we do this are we ready to do this are we prepared can we do it did we just decide a name <laughs> we did it guys oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere Woo! it came out of nowhere i liked it i saw it ready to turn your aspirations into reality follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to emerging and chart your own path to architectural success Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.